0: And Welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. I'm Vlad and today my guest is Avi Rosten, who is a good friend of mine. We used to work together at CryptoGlobe. I think right now he is one of the editors, if not the editor-in-chief. I'm not sure about that, but he is my second favorite person after John Medley at CryptoGlobe. And I know that Avi also graduated from the London School of Economics, which I guess is the third most prestigious institution in the United Kingdom, after Oxford and Cambridge. And he has a degree in political science and a master in political philosophy, I think. But I'll give, I'll leave it to Avi to describe himself and say hello to you. So hi, Avi. Hi,
1: Vlad. Thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, so I'll just give a brief uh, summary. Vlad got it nearly 100% correct. um, So, yeah, so I'm a managing editor of CryptoGlobe.com, which is a crypto news site. Um, He's right about my uh, degrees, except my master's actually in philosophy, um, generally. So I didn't actually do too much political philosophy, although uh, I didn't realize that when I got into it um, because the Bristol course, was uh, University of Bristol was quite philosophy of science focused. Um, But we did do a little bit of moral and political philosophy as well. Um, Yeah, so I'm just uh, excited to be here. So
0: so Avi, how did you get into Bitcoin? Of all the stuff in this world that you can become interested in and embrace, why was it Bitcoin?
1: Uh, I guess it's quite a familiar story. So I think I probably first heard about it in about 2013. Uh, when I was at university, but I really didn't look into it a lot. I mean, to be honest, embarrassingly, I thought it was going to probably end in a bit of a disaster. I thought this is some crazy dark net, illegal money that's, you know, connected to the Silk Road and that's being used by criminals. So I kind of bought bought into the uh, the media narrative on it. And I didn't think about it too much more afterwards. I'd occasionally see an article saying something like Bitcoin's hit $1,000 or something, um, I remember the Mount Gox uh, incident, uh, but I didn't really get into it that much or read about it much, or really understand what it was, other than it was some kind of new digital currency. Um, in I think it was about 2015 or 2016, I watched a documentary on Netflix about the dark web, um, and then that got into the whole uh, Ross Ulbricht saga, Um, the use of Bitcoin uh, then, and that got me a bit more interested in. But still, I wasn't committed enough to, you know, really read a lot about it. I read a few articles. I think I remember reading some of the Coindesk intros into it. But again, I still had an incredibly superficial knowledge of it, and I wasn't, you know, that interested in it. Kind of saw it in the news occasionally. In 2016, the end of 2016, I came on on the verge of buying Bitcoin at about $1,000, I think it was. And I was, I'd was i signed up on everything. I can't remember which, I think it was Coinbase or one of them. And I was on the verge of buying Bitcoin. I thought, no way, it's $1,000 now. There's no way it's going to go up from here, uh, which I regretted massively uh, come November 2017. But I'd say when I really got into it and why I got into it was more, for a lot of people's reasons, I was just astonished by the, where it was going in terms of price in the latter half of 2017. And then I started to read more about it started to buy some bitcoin and litecoin um and a few other and, and ether um to, in the latter half of 2017 i started to read more about it progressively um and then in december in, i suppose it was december january february i started to really read a lot more about bitcoin about mining about the ideas behind it read the white paper and then i read it again and i still don't fully understand it but Getting there, and then um, in April I applied to Crypto Globe to be a freelance writer, and then one thing led to another, and now um, I'm you know fully down the rabbit hole of crypto, and I'm a managing editor at Crypto Globe, and uh, I'm realizing the more I get into it, the I feel like the less I know, but it's uh, it's been an enjoyable an enjoyable ride so far.
0: Yeah, but that's the beauty of it. At first, you study like for a month. I think that's the usual process. When you first discover Bitcoin, you get obsessed and you start reading and researching and you ask yourself questions and you stumble upon lots of conspiracy theories about who Satoshi is. And I guess that's the first stage of involvement when you're trying to figure out who is behind this massive phenomenon. And after that point, you think that you know, but then you get onto Bitcoin Talk or Reddit or crypto Twitter, and that's where it gets complicated when you realize that there are so many people who know so much more than you do and have a profound understanding. And there are so many points of view from which you can perceive Bitcoin. Depending on your background, you can actually see it as something else. And that's actually fascinating. And the more you actually read into it, you realize that, you don't know anything and you're only scratching the surface. And I've had this conversation with Udi. Hmm. I think his last name is Vetheimer. I don't want to pronounce it, but he is a developer. And he told me that he still considers himself to be a noob in terms of understanding Bitcoin, even though he is a developer and has that perspective of somebody who can actually program and, well, that's
1: quite depressing. If, if Udi considers himself a noob, then I'm like the ultra noob.
0: <laughs> yeah, we both are. And we have backgrounds which are pretty divergent. But at the same time, I like to think that through this podcast, we can actually present something which is different from what we usually get in terms of narrative and in terms of understanding. And I guess the next question which I should be asking you is, does your interest in Bitcoin come from your political views? Were you rather more libertarian?
1: Yeah, so I, that, I'm after, you know, spending quite a lot of time studying, obviously, political philosophy in my undergrad, which is, I think, the thing that I enjoyed the most in, in political science. I, was less int- I did quite a lot of international relations as well, and I was more interested in, in the philosophical stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there is definitely a draw to that. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I was drawn into the world of Bitcoin, you know, purely or even largely by ideological motivations. But the more I read about it, the more I, that resonated with me. I mean, I was, in terms of libertarianism, I was, I think, the philosopher in my undergraduate studies that I was most keen on and most interested by and studied the most in depth um, was John Stuart Mill. Um, and his... You know, see his famous essay on liberty, one of kind of the founding texts of, of, I guess, political libertarianism, and that that definitely appealed to me. I still, I, I'm I'm quite a, I suppose, wavering person when it comes to political ideology, and I, and having studied it at university, and you know, seen, for example, with John Stuart Mill, his there's a famous uh, point of contention between his famous two essays, which are liberty and utilitarianism and there are are often conflicts between the two political uh, ideologies so I I find it hard to necessarily box myself into one ideology completely so I wouldn't necessarily describe myself as a you know out and out as a libertarian although I do have very strong sympathies with the libertarian um, ideology and I think definitely that that aspect of bitcoin I find very appealing and also empowering I think it's uh, you know has the potential to be politically and economically empowering, and I do, I do find that very interesting. When I'm more, what I'm more suspicious of, um, and, and it was always my, what I'm suspicious of generally when it comes to ideas and ideologies, is when people take them to an extreme degree. When people, you know, I see sometimes on crypto, Twitter, come to the extreme libertarianism, and the kind of, which in some ways to me often resembles faith. Uh, and I, I don't mean faith. I'm not using that in a derogatory sense, but I mean faith without reason. So the markets will solve everything. Um, we have no need for governments. Uh, economic freedom is absolute. That kind of stuff I'm a little more suspicious about. Um, but I do, I do definitely. It does. I do definitely identify with a lot of the uh, libertarian streaks within within Bitcoin and the crypto movement more broadly.
0: I guess I was also influenced by John Stuart Mill. We had a class in the first year. I think this was back in 2011 or 2012 when I was in my first year of university. And we had this class about political thought, which started from Plato and Aristotle and went all the way to more modern thinkers like Max Weber. Yeah. And when we started to... Study John Stuart Mill and the professor was outlining some ideas on the board it was as if somebody was mentioning some thoughts that I already had before but in a more concise and educated manner so it was as if somebody was organizing some of the thoughts which I already have so maybe yeah that's a good that's always a good sign yeah That the fact that I got into Bitcoin is just based on my natural or educated opinions of society and politics. And that should be an interesting study to undergo if somebody ever wants to conduct that.
1: Yeah, it would be definitely. I I do think that I'm sure some philosophers might be listening and wondering whether John Stuart Mill has a direct relationship to kind of economic uh, libert- libertarianism as opposed to kind of ideological or intellectual liberalism, which I think is what he's more famous for. But I think that's uh, I, I mention that more because that's where I first got exposed to the ideas, you know, early on of, of uh, liberty. I think an interesting area that's now developing um, which is obviously very directly related to John Stuart Mill and his ideas of freedom of speech is this uh, controversy surrounding payment platforms, and that's something that I actually am very interested in uh, in terms of crypto and Bitcoin um, is the way that now you've seen with Patreon and other payment payment platforms um, with Bitcoin and crypto more broadly acting as a uh, as a kind of bastion of, a potential bastion of, of, of free speech, that's something that does interest me and I do feel more strongly about Um, yeah, so that is an, that is definitely, that is something that I think is something I could identify with more strongly. How do you feel about that?
0: I believe that money in itself is a way of expressing oneself. So it is speech in this regard. The way you actually spend your money tells a lot about what you do and what you are interested in and what kind of person you are. And that's why I can see the point of having privacy, which you have with cash to a certain extent that you go, you walk into a store, you pay up in cash and maybe that the salesperson will see your face and remember your voice and the clothes that you're wearing. Maybe that they will not remember what you're buying because they have hundreds of customers every day. But with electronic commerce and the way in which packages get delivered to your door by ordering online, it's a lot more delicate because the companies tend to store the data and use it in ways that you may not be aware of and change their terms of service. Maybe in a transparent way. You get emails, you get notified, but you just don't have the time to read about it. And Mm -hmm. I guess it makes a lot of sense to look for more private ways in which we can actually have the equivalent of walking into a store and spending your money. We want the money to be fungible and you, we want our personal data to be revealed to the slightest degree possible. Hmm. Otherwise, we're just going to turn into this big police state or world government which collaborates and has all the data stored in places that can be accessed at any point. And to me, that's depressing. And that's one of the criticisms that I have in regards to Bitcoin, that it's not private enough to allow you to transact. And I think at the same time, you have these privacy coins, which do not have the same network effect and are harder to use and I guess it would be useful to implement side chains in Bitcoin, but that's a long discussion with confidential transactions or potentially Mimblewimble, which seems to be all the rage right now. Everybody talks about it and how it's minimalistic, takes up the smallest amounts of block space and is actually fungible. That's interesting. But right now I'm looking into alternatives for Patreon, like Bitbacker. And I'm sure there are a dozen more which emerged just to please people like Jordan Peterson, who announced that he would leave Patreon and join some other platform. I, I guess at that point, they just started this wave of free development, and everybody was trying to come up with the ultimate solution to make up for the features of Patreon and provide something Useful, which uses Bitcoin and it will be interesting in the next year to see how we move on to these lesser centralized mi- means of making payments and how we can actually use smart contracts to replace that system which Patreon had to pay, pay up every month a fixed amount of money according to your backers.
1: Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I, I followed quite closely the um Dave Rubin, Jordan Peterson and others their kind of exit from Patreon because I'm I've been following Jordan Peterson for a while. Um and it, it was interesting because I think some people misinterpreted or some people could misinterpret it why they were doing it. Um it's not because they themselves, as I mentioned many times, had any you know, Patreon objecting to their to their um, to the content on their platforms. It was more, as a consequence of the, I suppose it was a, an idealistic thing, but also the idea that what could happen if if you if we as content creators allow a payment provider to police what we say, regardless of whether what we say is objectionable or not. The fact it's the I think what they were saying is the principle of the idea of giving the rights of censorship to payment. Processes and in some cases even banks. Like there was an incident with Mastercard, I think. That so Patreon deferred and said actually it was Mastercard who told us that we can't um, process certain uh, people's payments. That's what's worrying to them, and I think worrying to me. And to take it back to your first question, that that's an example where my political philosophies actually do have real-world ramifications. Um, is is with where where it actually translates into curtailments of freedom of speech, um, and obviously it's difficult because people see platforms like Gab, which was used by the I can't remember his name, but the um, the terrorist who shot uh, who shot several, a lot of people at the synagogue in Pittsburgh. Um, that I think it was Pittsburgh. That that um, shooting was obviously publicised on Gab, and therefore it gets this association with, I think, freedom of speech platforms become almost inextricably linked to far-right or extremist ideologies. But I think there's a danger in making that connection and therefore saying, well, these platforms just exist to harbour those people, because they can exist to harbour people who, who for, who for whatever reason, payment processes find their opinions unpalatable, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those opinions are, you know, extremist or, or problematic in any way. Um, it's just, it's the principle of why should the payment processes define what we find palatable? And I think that is, that's the point where I, I, uh, I see my kind of political persuasions or at least philosophical persuasions translating into real life.
0: I think I agree with the Gab standpoint that our society doesn't need some kind of policing in regards to speech. And if anything, we need more speech to actually encounter and be able to debate the opinions which maybe are not appealing to us. In the end, it's about facing the reality and the truth and stop denying the fact that people with different opinions exist. And... I guess our civilization was shaped by this concept of conflict of ideas. I don't think consensus in one single direction was ever good for us. And I I guess Max Weber was the one who defined this standpoint that civilization. And I think it was in the Protestant work ethic that the conflict of ideas, which were Prevalent in Christianity were actually a driving force behind emerging the capitalist system and the yeah. industrial revolution.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, the, that's where John Stuart Mill comes in, obviously, with the, the idea of the, the free competition of ideas. And I, I understand, as in, when it comes to these issues, I understand the more, I suppose, le- what's become the left-wing position now, or the more authoritarian position of, well, you're giving air, you're giving voice to people who have extreme and you know, abhorrent opinions. Um, but at the same time, the, the point of John Stuart Mill and the others was not that having a free uh, platform for entirely free speech doesn't have its dangers. It's just that the dangers of policing it outweigh the dangers of not policing it. And that's the important point. And it's a point that Jordan Peterson makes, which is that you say, well, oh, we need to have some kind of vetting and policing of, of this speech. Otherwise, it gives, gives uh, reign to people who have abhorrent opinions, who might be inciting violence or might be inciting other things. But the question is, well, who decides it? Will you decide it? Does the government decide it? Does, does the, the company decide it? Is it done by majority? Is it done by people, by the outrage mob on Twitter? I mean, who decides it? And I think the point, at least the way I read it and what I took from it, from John Stripman and others, was that the point of freedom of speech is that no one decides it, and therefore uh, the, the dangers that are inherent in that outweigh the dangers of authoritarian policing of speech. And I, and I think that that's, that's where I, where I um, see platforms like Gab, even if they give voice to far extreme far-right views, they have uh, an important role to play because they don't police anything. Um, It's interesting, actually, as well. I think people pointed out at the time we we wrote an article on CryptoGlobe about this. One of our our writers pointed out that Twitter and Facebook also had posts from this shooter, and no one was calling for Twitter and Facebook's payment processes to be undone, uh, which I think is a point that wasn't mentioned enough.
0: And I also think that Gab had a bad reputation prior to that unfortunate event, as it was portrayed by the New York Times and many other left-wing publications as the place where neo-Nazis gather. Not neo-Nazis, but at least the right I'm not sure what kind of term they used, but it was just portrayed to people reading the New York Times, and I guess they have a pretty wide audience, as the place where all the toxicity and all the negative phenomena that go on in our society actually blossom. And that's where it all comes from. Yeah, I think it's perpetual with social media and the internet. I think it was with Reddit at some point where they blamed all the racist memes coming from Reddit. And then it was 4chan and it was also hidden lol, but that's a different website. I guess people will always find comfort in anonymity and try to express their darker side of humor. But we shouldn't, as journalists or as professionals, we shouldn't legitimize these opinions by giving them a label and trying to create panic. I guess that's what sells at the end of the day, and that's what gets the clicks. But when you make it popular and bring it onto the mainstream discussion scene... That's dangerous and that's how you create divisive opinions and that's how you make people argue. And today, if you check out the news, it's about a Native American who was or was not, depends on which version of the same event you actually take into consideration, bullied by kids wearing Make America Great Again hats. Mm. I'm not sure if you saw that, but I haven't seen that actually. It's a prime example of how our biases can actually change narratives. And I guess the beauty of it, the beauty of Bitcoin as a mean of exchange is that you actually get to express yourself regardless of what you think. It's rooted in what Tim May wrote in the Cyphernomicon when he said that privacy is much more important than compliance to laws. And it's also rooted in the philosophy of positivism, which says that human beings are not inherently bad. It's just the exception that makes them bad. In the largest majorities, people are actually good-willing and good in nature. It's not like we should legitimize our police states by the fact that 1% of people are criminals by making the assumption that all of us can be criminals because that that's insane and that meddles with our liberty so just
1: to make it, so are you so the reason you mentioned the um this I just saw the new story with uh these native american boys what was your point precisely with that was are you saying that the fact that those kind of you know, people exist who we don't, who, you know, we, we find most people find abhorrent means that we shouldn't therefore censor the rest or even them as a result. Is that, is that your, I'm just trying to isolate what you mean by that?
0: No, it, it was just a contemporary case of how media shapes our biases and how actually we don't really debate. And that's what Gab is great for. it, it encourages anyone to sign up and you can have opposing views you, you just get there and you see all the controversial opinions being voiced and you yeah. can talk about it but on twitter and facebook it's also divisive it's all about taking sides and trying to find arguments against the other one it's tribalism in a nutshell yeah and
1: yeah I, I, interesting i think that gab what interests me about gab is that and it might be that at first the platform becomes a gathering place for those people but but that might just be a function of the fact that it was so it's a very small platform now so those that are forced onto it will make up most of its inri- initial audience and perhaps as the censorship of the much bigger platforms becomes greater more and more people who you know, we might consider less extreme and, and more, uh, quote unquote mainstream will gravitate towards it. And it won't just become the sole province of, of, uh, of those kind of people. It will become a much broader, uh, ch- church for one of a better word. It, it will because, but I think that perhaps the reason why it started in that way was because those people are the first wave of people to be forced off other platforms. But if, if, as many suspect, platforms like Twitter and Facebook, etc., become more censorious, you will see a migration of far more, uh, you know, palatable people like Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin, who is, I, I still think, is, is very much a liberal, moving to other platforms because they feel ideologically concerned about uh, the the censorship that is, is coming.
0: And the more people join Gab, the more popular Bitcoin gets because it has become the default way in which you can donate to the platform and I can see how in the future they can even implement a system to transfer money through the Lightning Network on Gab and that will be really sweet and a great great example which provides more adoption for Bitcoin. And I guess the beauty of Bitcoin at the end of the day from a political point of view is that it's completely neutral. It doesn't care what you think. It doesn't care what you do. You're going to have your money transferred. And it's up to us as goodwilling citizens to report bad behavior. It's not up to the payments processor itself or the mean of making the exchange to decide who is a bad actor. It's up to us to figure out and discover and take charge of the situations in our lives.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I also think that I'm quite cynical about the motivations of companies like Mastercard and Patreon when they uh, shut down people that they view as unacceptable. I, I very much think that it's driven by an expected profit uh, calculation. So it's not driven by the fact that they... Care deeply about these opinions and are trying to shut them down. It's more driven by an expectation that the audience, the media, or a certain very or certain very vocal groups on platforms like Twitter, etc., will shout them uh, into oblivion and affect their profits. And I don't think it's. It, I think it's quite cynically driven by an expectation of what will damage their brand reputation, um, and possibly an expectation that's actually incorrect it might be that they're reacting to a small demographic of uh, of their, of that customer base or the you know the world at large but that has a disproportionately loud voice so the, the kind of people i'm thinking of is kind of the outrage culture that exists on twitter that uh, that demographic which i strongly suspect is far more vocal uh, than its numbers might lead companies to make calculations based on that demographic when in reality the vast majority of people aren't as bothered by the opinions that they censor or would rather have a platform that's open um and in fact so it could be that they're actually you know shooting themselves in the foot as well even uh even if it's supposed to be a you know a a profit-driven calculation
0: I remember when I was in Paris at Sciences Po, and I guess this is the part in which I brag about my academic credentials, (laughs) but I was there and I had a class with a young lady professor whose name is Julia Caget. And interestingly, she's the wife of Thomas Piketty, who is one of the most influential economists of the left.
1: Mm.
0: And she gave us a lecture about media biases and bubbles and how on social media it's so easy to actually isolate yourself in your comfort zone of views so you never actually get to see what the other side says and even with televisions and newspapers it has become so easy to just find opinions which appeal to the ideas which you already have so that Mm -hmm. you don't ever get an opposing view and whenever you It strikes you in real life that somebody else disagrees with you. It's a lot harsher than it used to be. You don't accept as easily. You just think that they're dumb or that they're misinformed or that they should read the same books as you do. And this is part of why we have these conflicts nowadays. Back in the newspapers days, when people would walk to a store and buy the newspaper you had greater chances to meet somebody who had opposing views and there was much more room for debates. But when you can just stay in your room and read the news online and check the sources which you like and find only the opinions which you find appealing, I guess it's more shocking when you find somebody who disagrees with you, even though that's natural and we We should be taught at an early age that we're different and we are shaped to have different views of the world. That's just part of our nature. To me, it's insane. And I think, at least I hope, that Bitcoin will bring so much more discourse and an increase in debates that we have as societies which pretend to be evolved from what we used to have 2,000 years ago when actually people used to debate much more than today And echo chambers are dangerous. That's the bottom line of my part of the speech.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that's, I noticed it myself you know, you watch two or three videos on YouTube and then suddenly the YouTube algorithm calculates, well, this guy is uh, right of center or this guy is left of center or and then you're suddenly bombarded for the rest of your life with the same... Say six or seven uh, people, or kinds of videos, and then you get more and more entrenched in that bubble. And it could be interestingly, as you were saying, that that could be what's driving some of the payment processors' uh, decisions. Is that they think, let's say that Silicon Valley, you know, is generally considered to be quite left of centre. Let's say you have a, 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 a an exec there at one of the payment processors or companies like Twitter and they, because of the nature of the algorithms on the platforms they use, they only see say things which are left of centre and they are in this, you know, almost this algorithmically generated bubble of videos and tweets and people they follow. They might come to believe that that is the dominant narrative or, or that is the, the, the vast majority of people in the, in the West believe that and therefore if they're thinking from a purely, not even an ideological place, but from a profit-driven place, if I have X person on my platform, I am alienating the vast majority of, of my audience, and I will make less money. They will act upon that. And so it could be that the very nature of the platforms themselves is driving the censorship, um, which which I think is quite an interesting and worrying, uh, worrying thought. And I, I think it's important as well for those... Who are right of center um, or more libertarian to realize that they too are the victims of those same algorithms um, and that their opinions are conditioned by the same phenomenon. Um, I definitely myself have realized, you know, who I, I think I am slightly right of center, that I have lived for the last X number of years because of YouTube and other platforms very much in an ideological bubble chamber, and it's important to draw yourself out of it. So, you know, every once in a while, I'll watch a Noam Tromsky video just to kind of throw a spanner in the works because otherwise I feel like there's a danger of becoming ideologically, uh, you know, cut off from from the other people. And I hope that things like Bitcoin and uh, other currencies give, you know, as you said, give, give people an ability to move outside of their immediate ideological comfort zone.
0: I mean, it was the same maybe in the 20th century. I'm thinking of the baby boomers in the United States who had their communities made up according to their wealth. So you had neighbors who probably voted the same because they were subject to the same tax policies. And to them, it was all about following their economic interests. But it wasn't as if you were not meeting physically anybody who was outside your community and was different and had opposing views. And all these social movements from the 60s and the 70s were all about free speech and allowing anyone to voice their opinions and promoting much more of the minority views. And right now it's all about converging some kind of universal view on everything in which you're not even allowed to assume that they have a certain gender or that they come from a certain place or you're not allowed to mention some physical traits because it's offensive. I think this is a major step back from what we used to aim for. Yeah, I agree. I I think, um, I mean,
1: I, I do buy into the idea that the left is no longer liberal uh although um and i think that the there is a i'm not i'm not one of these conspiracy theorists who thinks that you know there's this cabal of of left leaning people who are trying to strangle hold the whole media but i do i do think that there is uh that, that there is a, a right-left imbalance in a lot of the media and i think that um there is a problem in that elements of the left have of or, or, or what some people would describe as the hard left, have become a lot more vocal and powerful than elements of other parts of the left. And you see this, people who are who have historically always been on the left uh, decrying this, um, people like Bill Maher, who I've noticed talk about this a lot, the the, the American church post uh, uh, and, and others. Um, and I think, as someone who I do believe in a lot of, uh, you know, quote-unquote liberal ideas in terms of free speech and things, I think it's important that um we don't go down the path of uh, as you said like a universal accepted set of uh, political ideologies on the left or right i see the same i see the same problems to some extent on 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 the right as well which is uh, as an example you know if if you were to say in certain right circles um i think global warming is a really big problem or climate change more more broadly you get the same kind sometimes get the same kind of derision and eye rolling and uh, pushing away as you might on the left if you say something that that isn 't part of the accepted canon of of beliefs and I think you 're right that this this factionalism and as you said the kind of universalism of of uh, ideology is is very dangerous um, and uh, I know it 's interesting you I read an article of yours. Um, the other day about uh, communists and Marxists and socialists um, and why they might come into Bitcoin. And I thought you made a good point which is that it's important for a community that's trying to be, or for a currency that, or a, an ideal that like Bitcoin that's trying to become more global that it's not a province of you know, hard you know, extreme libertarians or, or one particular political movement. I think that's a really good point that it's important that we have a diversity of opinion, a diversity of in this uh, new crypto world, because it can, it can seem quite alienating, I think. I think a lot of people who are, who say, let's say, oh, left of center might look on crypto Twitter and think, oh my gosh, it's a bunch of hard right libertarian crypto bros, and I don't want to get involved in that. And that's not helpful to the cause.
0: Yeah, exactly. Or they're going to say that it's the currency for the Silk Road, or, or for funding WikiLeaks, which has lost a lot of support from the left after being biased towards Donald Trump and the 2016 campaign. And maybe that they associate Bitcoin with Gab and they're going to say, this is not for me, even though they don't really understand that the protocol or the currency itself is neutral. And if some people have a certain ideological bias, and they hold larger amounts, that shouldn't discourage you from actually using the protocol. If, say, the, the wealthiest 1% of the world are maybe on the right side of the debate, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't use money. But if we stop using their money, I guess it would lose value, and that would make all the wealth they own worthless. So that's also an interesting point
1: yeah i think i do think it's um it is it is a bit problematic it could be a bit daunting um to uh to people who might feel politically outside of it and and that i mean it, that associationism i don't know if that's a word but that that idea of well that x thing is used by y demographic therefore it supports y's opinions is very problematic and as you said bitcoin itself is a completely neutral protocol it has no opinions, it has no politics, it has no ideology, it's it's just a technical uh instrument. And therefore, I think it's important that we don't we, we risk alienating a lot of people because people make that what I think is a fallacious uh argument. Well, if Bitcoin is used by Silk Road X, therefore therefore Bitcoin itself has those uh leanings is 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 uh, very problematic. I mean you see with people with with people who follow people's ideas. Well, if person X is mainly followed by demographic Y, therefore person X supports demographic Y's opinions, and that's very problematic. And that's a much easier case to make with Bitcoin, which isn't even a person. It's just a... It's not even... A, it's, it's an inanimate thing. So the, um, I think it's, it's important to educate people that they can use Bitcoin in the way that they want to use it and not the way that the majority of the people... Uh, who or a lot of the people who are perceived as using it um, might use it or think about
0: it in this world of libertarians and bitcoiners who are carnivores and you know these communities which seem to be very similar in their nature. I actually appreciate Jackson Palmer, who beyond inventing Dogecoin, which was a joke of his, which he doesn't want to be associated with anymore. He, he had a lot of contributions and ideas to make the space better. And I know that he had that website, Are We Decentralized Yet?, which presented the state of the most important cryptocurrencies and showed how actually we don't really have many nodes running the protocol. And it's a small percentage of big wallets owning the large, largest amount of coins and all these criticisms are useful in order for us to have a broader view on what's going on and try to decentralize in the true sense.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that it's important to have people like him uh, in the space because I, I'm very keen on diversity of thought. I think that's really, really important. And that's, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about John Strimmel. Diversity of thought is what drives society and intellectual society forward and I, I really um i think it's really important that you have people who are you know left of center or just different from the majority who uh who talk it's funny you mentioned the carnival thing i have noticed that i'm not i'm really not quite sure why bitcoin has been associated or crypto has been associated with people who are pro like pro carnivorous diet. perhaps it's a kind of uh, reaction to, the, to veganism? I, I don't know. <laughs> Why do you think that is?
0: I've had this discussion in a, another episode of this podcast, and it's been explained to me that it comes from a Nick Savo article about meat being an important element of human evolution, and I that see. it's easier in these days to trust meat that it's good than in the case of vegetables, which can be genetically modified. And if you have high-quality meat, which comes from the kind of animals that you hunt down and are not enhanced by growth hormones and whatever, it's actually much easier to trust that you're having healthy food. But I guess it was taken to the kind of extreme, which maybe is interesting to observe. But I'm a vegetarian and I watch them and I think to myself, okay... I used to eat meat about two years ago, until about two years ago. And I know for a fact that having too much meat and having every meal consisting of meat is bad. And you get a lot, a lot of cholesterol and you get fatter. And I guess the whole idea of a diet is to have it balanced. Just like in politics, it's good to have ideas from all the sides and make up something which is round and open to new ideas. I guess that's part of being a good human being. And that's what I read in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. It's the point he makes about virtues being actually the middle ground between being too good and being terrible as a person. You should never go to extremes with anything. Yeah, the golden mean. Not speech, not... Yeah, maximalism, even though I believe that Bitcoin should be the ultimate cryptocurrency and it's the king of this movement and it's the one which deserves to be the most developed just because it has the largest adoption rate. It's the most decentralized. The fact that it has an anonymous or at least pseudonymous founder helps the whole cause move forward. But at the same time, I don't think we should be and I don't want to offend anyone who will probably come to this podcast, but we shouldn't be close minded to something which comes and can be used, at least from the point of view of new ideas, even though the implementation is terrible. And I'm thinking right now of Beam, which is an implementation of the Mimblewimble protocol, it's terrible because it has founder words, rewards, but at the same time, it can push the development of software further. And even if it fails, we're going to have an open sourced code, which can be used for something else. And there's a lot of value in that. And a lot of people seem to dismiss this and only trust like a bunch, a dozen of developers who work on a certain project. But there's a whole world of ideas out there which just can't wait to show up and come our way and bring something new to the table. And maybe that most of these ideas will end up being developed into Bitcoin. And that's the beauty of it. We should not go to extremes.
1: Yeah, I agree. I I, I mean, as I've learned more and more about crypto, although I'm by no means uh, knowledgeable enough at all, the more i learn i have kind of moved towards the bitcoin maximalism end of the spectrum um mainly because i just see the number of you know ridiculous failed icos and i see the problems with a lot of the other cryptocurrencies but at the same time i think it's it's, it's almost as we were saying earlier it's another manifestation of that kind of ideological entrenchment to say oh well because everything that's been an alternative to bitcoin so far hasn't been great therefore bitcoin is the only thing that will be perfect forever and i think that's that's too closed i mean it it strikes me as being a a little too closed-minded um and a little intellectually suspicious because it's 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 you know it's a bit of a of a fallacy of i suppose you call it a fallacy of induction that because everything thus far has been not great therefore any new protocol that comes along any new altcoin that comes along or new blockchain that comes along is is just going to be by definition a failure and, um, I think that, yeah, it's important to be, uh, open-minded about the new, uh, project. Well, I have to say I've often, I've, I've, when it comes to new projects, I, my patience or I suppose, uh, enthusiasm gets, it's harder to muster enthusiasm for a new white paper or a new project because there's just been such a ridiculous number. I mean, I feel like 2018 for me, was just like reading about so many different things that it, it, it led to a little bit of, uh, I suppose exhaustion with new ideas, um, which is why it's sometimes easy to just go. Well, let's just go back to Bitcoin and and, and stick with that. Uh, but that's not necessarily uh, intellectually uh, viable position. Just because you're you know you're, you're tired or exhausted or fed up of lots of bad projects, that doesn't necessarily mean that there won't come along another another uh, cryptocurrency or blockchain or,
0: or or coin that that is you know, put in its own right. I remember we went together to the London Blockchain Summit back in June 2018. Yeah. And there were a bunch of really terrible projects out there being presented <coughs> by people who are <laughs> being overly positive about what ERC-20 tokens can actually do. And I, yeah, I remember I didn't have the patience to listen to anyone. They would try to pitch me their ideas and I would just tell them, I, I'm, I actually don't have money to invest. I'm a poor journalist. Yeah,
1: it's, it's hard. I, think, um, I also think that the, that effect for those outside the space or who are casually interested in the space is, um, has been quite damaging. You know, most of the people I know you know, outside the space, who've come across it, or even bought a bit some cryptos, or bought some things. Now they're just they're just completely switched off because all the altcoins they bought in the latter half of 2017 are now worthless and haven't produced anything, or have dropped 10x in value. And there's been collateral damage there even to Bitcoin. They just view it all as this one negative lump. And I think so many of these. Um, smaller altcoins that people might have invested in have just switched them off from the space entirely, which is which is a problem. Um, and I think that, I, I I don't know, what do you think? Do you think that the ICO bull run crazy period of 2017 and 18 was net negative for the space? I, I'm interested in that question, whether it was that it was a net or bad thing um, because it brought a lot of people in, but at the same time it burnt a lot of people and a lot of people lost a lot of money and the media had a field day making fun of, of all this um, collapse. Um, and, it, you know, the, and that's not to mention you know, the hundreds of scams and outright frauds and thefts and hacks. What, what do you think about the, the kind of period of 2017-18 as a kind of net? Do you think, would you say it was a net positive or a net negative?
0: I think it was a slight net negative in the sense that I can see some positive outcomes out of it. I know that people have developed the kind of unrealistic expectations about what blockchains should be or what they can be used for. And I guess we still see these distorted ideas about what they can do by putting it on the blockchain without asking in a critical way the, I, the question, why does this need a blockchain? Mm-hmm. But it brought so many different people into the industry, if we can call it an industry. And we have developers who have gotten into legitimate projects. And we had investors who maybe discovered Bitcoin and understood it better. Because at at one point, it's inevitable. You first get drawn into this scam project, which promises to do a lot. But in the end, it just crashes down and burns and makes people lose their money. But while you're at it, you actually get to learn a little something. If you got into, let's say, BitConnect, which is the lowest denominator of investments that you could have made, (laughs) at least you know about Bitcoin. And I guess BitConnect was shaped in a way that was similar to Bitcoins. It was a fork of it, if I'm not mistaken. It was a fork from the Genesis block, which used a similar similar protocol, and it gave people the chance to learn how to use wallets, how to use the private key, how to use the public key, how to make transactions. And if they actually have the patience, they can switch to Bitcoin. I think that the main problem with Bitcoin is that it only appeals to a small number of people who already have a predisposition from an ideological point of view to embrace it. At least it has been so, so far, as only libertarians and people who longed for the gold standard and maybe some computer scientists who saw the potential of the protocol, those were the ones who got into Bitcoin. And then there came a wave of speculative investors and a lot of them withdrew. We see some promises from institutions that want to get in, but we don't have anything tangible or concrete. But there's a lot of positive outcomes coming from people who buy into scam coins and later on discover Bitcoin. Well, I wonder if there wasn't for that promise that they would annex their investments and Yep. They would learn at their own expense that they invested in a scam project. If they have any patience after that, they're going to discover Bitcoin. And that's an extension. That's a way of attracting a larger number of people who, got, who get in being greedy and then maybe realize something which they haven't or wake up from this eternal slumber of fiat money and government. The
1: dogmatic slumber of...
0: Yeah, <laughs> Yeah.
1: Um, I, I wonder, though, whether, yeah, I, th- I think I'd agree with you that there has been a, ne- a slight negative because I think for every one person that, you know, bought BitConnect or some other scam coin and then went down the rabbit hole and ended up at Bitcoin and became a crypto enthusiast, there might have been, for every one of those, there might have been 10 who bought a scam coin or not even necessarily a scam coin, but just a, an altcoin, even a top 10 altcoin, bought it X price in November of 2017, watched it collapse tenfold, and now it's completely switched off for a very long time. So I wonder whether that hype and craze and and all the... Even those which are, you know, legitimate or at least of questionable legitimacy, whether they've actually switched off a whole wave of people to Bitcoin and other legitimate projects because they they were so burnt by the experience. Um, That's what concerns me and I, I see that with people that i you know i was talking to in in autumn of 2017 who are now just completely switched off and don't want to know about it and it's like their, their net experience of of cryptocurrency and the whole of the blockchain world is i invested ten thousand dollars and it's now worth eight hundred dollars and that's their just experience and that's an incredibly negative one obviously and i think that that's a real problem at least for now
0: At least I hope they ask themselves whether there is something beyond the speculative investment part and what their investment actually means beyond the idea that at some point in the future they would sell and get more fiat. And I I I was about to mention that we are in the middle of a change of narrative. As so far, Bitcoin has only appealed to a small group. But now that we see platforms like Patreon, and PayPal just posing down accounts based on ideological divergent views. We're going to see many more people joining Bitcoin just because they want to express themselves freely. And this is a radical change in narrative. And it's something that a lot more people need. So far, it has been about having... Unconfiscable money. And some people don't care about that just because their governments never took their money away. And they have lived for most of their lives in liberal governments, which allowed them to store their money safely and without any issues, except for maybe inflation. But now we're seeing people who want to use their free speech and maybe fund projects which are banned from major platforms. And they're going to get into Bitcoin. They're going to learn more about it. And this is going to be another big wave of individual adoption. Because at the end of the day, institutions are just looking to maximize their investments. I'm not sure if they see the potential in holding Bitcoins for, say, 20 years. I guess they will just sell off at the new all-time high and enjoy the profits which they made from other people who bought on the long term, but that's fine. In the end, it will be about those who dream and make happen an alternative mean of exchange, which with itself brings a parallel economy, which people will use to express their freedom. And they will not be willing to do any trade-offs anymore in terms of privacy And in terms of intervention with the way they spend their money,
1: yeah, I I think uh, I think you're right. I think what you're saying about the the, the free speech opening up Bitcoin to a whole new audience. um, I think the Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin and others incident has actually exposed a lot of people who probably hadn't heard of it because they have huge followings, and others like Brett Weinstein um, and Eric Weinstein who have um, exposed now another wave of people to to crypto as something more than just, oh, check out this thing I can buy on Coinbase and triple my money on. They've now exposed it to a more actual you know use case of, of crypto rather than just as a speculative uh, instrument. But I agree with you that I think the the banks and institutions, of course, are just coming aboard because it's a, uh, it's a new uncorrelated asset. So they're saying it's another way of making money, but that still, again, brings brings more people on board. Um, so I, I do think that there's probably a positive. It's a net positive, that.
0: How do you see governments reacting? You're in England right now. What is the policy in regards to Bitcoin? Does it get taxed? Can you actually spend it in shops or hotels or restaurants?
1: So in terms of the government, I mean, I, I covered a story recently on the... Um, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, which is the, the UK's financial regulator, and the um, and the UK government's, they have they set up a crypto asset task force, which was tasked with their approach to it. I think um, talking to our CFO um, and a few others, I th- I'm not a t- an accountant and I'm not a regulatory but I'm not a lawyer, so I um, disclaimers. But I think the approach he characterised it as is cautious but not negative so that they are keen to foster um innovation and growth but they also are aware that people have been scammed out a lot of money there is an interesting thing that the task the crypto asset task force published um towards the end of last year was about crypto derivatives it's possible they might ban outright ban crypto derivatives in the uk so things so there's there's something called a cFD which is a europe anything a, a contract for difference, which is a kind of um, derivative um, which have been trading in in the u k um, as well as you know other uh, uh, options et cetera but they they are p- potentially going to ban them in terms of uh, but i think generally i'm not again I'm really not an expert on this, but I think that there is a i think it's not not, i don't think it's hostile approach there could be an interesting twist in the tail because because of brexit and economic uh problems thereof that could i don't know this might be completely naive but it could be that as a result of that they might look as other jurisdictions have done to crypto and blockchain as a means of securing alternate you know other kinds of investment like like obviously it's nowhere near as extreme as Malta or other you know tax havens where they're basically. You know said do what you want here um, because we want your investment I wonder whether if brexit goes as badly as some people think it will whether that will uh, open up a bit but that might be completely speculative in terms of payment and spending in a, in a word no uh, there, it's really not that common I, don't, I occasionally see a Bitcoin ATM there's actually a Bitcoin ATM quite near where I live but that's quite a rarity uh, and in terms of accepting Bitcoin I I've never come across a shop here I mean you have to really go out of your way to find them um, and it's not something that that is common at all um, uh, so yeah I, I don't think that we're anywhere near the, the level we're very far away from the level where people start accepting it merchant wise um, and in terms of the regulatory environment um, I think it, I, I, from what I can tell it's um, it's not that different from, from, say, the U.S. or other places. Although in 2019, as I said, the FCA and the government um, are publishing more guidance on, on um, how they want to regulate this, uh, this space.
0: To me, it's actually interesting that when I find out about government policies in regards to Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies... They tend to treat them as commodities, or as securities, or anything else but money. They refuse to acknowledge that they can be money, because this would be a major defeat on their side. It would be like saying, you can also use this made-up coin, which exists on the internet as an alternative to our solution with central banking, and that. To my limited knowledge, hasn't happened so far.
1: Yeah, I think um, the the UK had in this report, this Crypto Asset um task uh this Crypto Asset Task Force, they had um a classification system where they don't really acknowledge it as money. I'm just getting it up. Um they actually have Three, I think they have three um, categories of, uh, of how they categorize um, crypto assets. And I, as, as I remember, I'm just um, getting it up on my computer. But yeah, they have um, three classes. And I don't think any of them, as I recall, actually are currency. Um, yeah so they have three categorizations they call them exchange tokens security tokens and utility tokens so this is actually the um the one of the uh, kind of the FCA's senior figures i think possibly who was on the crypto asset task force responded to the government's report on it and he interestingly said um when he was kind of offering a taxonomy of of crypto assets he said In my opinion, none of them are actually, um, he says, yeah, exchange tokens, which are often referred to incorrectly, in my view, as cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin, Litecoin, and equivalents. So he doesn't, according to their categorization, they they have exchange tokens, security tokens, and utility tokens, and even what he calls exchange tokens, so Bitcoin, Litecoin, et cetera, don't, uh, he says, we do not believe that they constitute money or currency. So they clearly don't even see um, though you know Bitcoin, which is or, or Litecoin or others, which are the most currency-like of of a lot of the crypto assets, they don't view them actually as as currencies. Uh, they view them as exchange tokens, uh, or and they have other things, security tokens, which well you know things like STOs, and then utility tokens, which they would you know view as a lot of probably a lot of ERC twenty tokens and others. So yeah, even so, the government in the UK clearly doesn't, or the FCA at least is um, unwilling to call them. To treat them as currencies
0: no yeah, that, that's interesting and it's going to be fascinating to watch how the narrative changes and how they realize that if people use bitcoin as money they're going to change their policies and if they're going to acknowledge bitcoin as a currency then maybe that they're going to have either more restrictions on how you can use it or spend it, which is insane, but I guess it relies on good faith and reporting whoever uses it or maybe using some kind of Orwellian system which tracks your IP and looks for your internet activity to see if you're using crypto wallets. But these can be easily bypassed by people who are a little bit knowledgeable of security measures. So will governments eventually allow you to pay taxes in Bitcoin without actually using payment processors? Are we going to see a world in which you no longer need foreign exchange and the by-default currency when you travel is Bitcoin and you can use it uh, as a currency and local ATMs to withdraw some cash in the local currency. That's something that I really want to see and it's going to be interesting if they actually implement it. But at the same time, I can see how the banks, which have been the most influential financial institutions for centuries, are becoming defensive. And I guess they will make... Fiat's so much more accessible and easy to use that you'll have no other reason to use Bitcoin other than censorship resistance and the idea that you are autonomous and you you can hold your own money. So it will only fuel these two rather narrow niches of people want to be in charge of their own money and who don't want to be censored when they make transactions.
1: Yeah, I really, I've, uh, I'm, I have no idea where it's going to go. I'm open to all kinds of uh, possibilities. What I'm quite confident of, although I may be wrong, is that Bitcoin has some place in the future of money, whether it will become a global reserve currency or a fringe uh, asset. That's it. Somewhat is now, I, I, have not, um, I have no idea, but I, I'm relatively confident that it, it's around. It will be around for some time to come, but, but I could be wrong.
0: Okay, Avi. So people have been listening to you for over an hour now, and <laughs> we didn't get to say how you can be contacted. How can people reach you and write you messages or read your articles? You have to mention that.
1: Sure. So um, I am on Twitter at t- Twitter at Avi underscore Rosten, R-O-S-T-E-N. Um, The website is cryptoglobe.com. Uh, you can email me at arosten at cryptoglobe.com or info at cryptoglobe.com. Um, yeah, so cryptoglobe.com is really the way. Get in touch. Um, keep, keep a lookout for our articles because uh, we, other than just rolling news, which we try and get quite uh, quickly towards, we have um, some original research we publish um, so we did an interesting analysis recently on crypto news trends, which uh, I wrote, which you might be interested in, in checking out. And we have some opinion pieces, some uh, interviews, uh, which are original interviews. So I think, yeah, keep an eye on us. And uh, yeah, you can get in touch with me via Twitter or email.
0: Oh, wait, I, I still have a question for you. Oh, sure. You mentioned interviews, and I recall that you interviewed David Chom. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The original developer of digital
1: cash. That's right. My friend referred to him as the Oist of all Gs. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he was uh, he was very interesting. Yeah, it was interesting talking to him. Um talk to someone who's who's been around in the you know for so long. Like it's I mean he's been thinking about these problems since before I was born. So it was quite uh a privilege to talk to him. Um we we spoke uh, I mean you could read the interview on the site, but we spoke at length about um the origins of, of, of the movement, what he sees as the function of cryptocurrencies, where he thinks the current crop of crypto assets are going wrong um, in terms of transaction uh, processes and, and other things. Although he didn't explicitly say this, he did, I think he did at least, uh, he wasn't keen to come down on any one side in, in the, the kind of store of value versus uh, medium of exchange debate. He did, in my opinion, quite strongly indicate that crypto assets at least as they are now are not being used enough anywhere near as enough as a medium of exchange and there is a problem to be addressed there um in terms of transaction speeds and you know the amount the networks can process and and i I think he the way he envisioned cryptocurrencies um in the 80s and 90s with things like with ecash and digicash and other things that he um that he started was was more of a you know a, a means of of payment, um, and I think he, he, you know, he said so in the interview that he was, he's, you know, unsatisfied with the way that the current crop of crypto assets are not fulfilling that uh, role. Although he didn't say that he didn't, he didn't say explicitly that doesn't think Bitcoin could reach that. Uh, he didn't really comment on whether Bitcoin could do that. Um, I mean, partly I think because he's got his new Elixir um, platform which is launched. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was it was fascinating to hear from someone who's been. You know thinking about this for a very long time
0: did you actually meet him in person or was it yes. a type interview no it was
1: actually a physical interview uh we met in london um he was in london for a conference so we met at the end of august um in a, on the rooftop of a hotel which was very cool
0: i'm so jealous right now
1: <laughs> fanboyish yeah uh, no, it was, if it was you're really... going to tell
0: me that he also met Nick Sabo when he came to London, I'm no, going to so if
1: only.
0: I if will only. stop this interview. But I heard <laughs> that John Medley has met him. Oh
1: yeah, very possibly. I, I don't know. I, it's very difficult to uh, to get an interview with him, as, as far as I can tell. Um, and uh, no, I, I'd love to. That would be really like a dream on I um, I met. A few, I, I skyped uh, John McAfee, which was which was cool. Although I have, I'd love to meet him in person.
0: He's running for um, president.
1: I know it's great. I think uh, I think it's going to be an interesting, <laughs> an interesting presidential campaign again. Um, although he's not he's not running for the um, the libertarian candidate as he was last time. Is he's doing it as an independent? i Am correct?
0: Well, he has all the money to do it. So he, yeah, he had that coin of the week campaign to fund his campaign. His campaign. It'd be it'd
1: be interesting. it will be it'd be good. I wonder if he'll. You know sometimes these news programs always have some kind of wild card on there for uh, balance or for, you know, style of interest. I wonder if he'll make it onto like any <coughs> CNN debates with like Elizabeth Warren and Donald Trump. <laughs> It'd be hilarious if he, if he makes it on uh onto the news somehow and you know here are the two them, the two mainstream candidates and here's John McAfee running running with his uh whale <laughs> with his whale pictures.
0: Oh yeah, and that uh, Status he posted on Twitter about yeah, having sex with fantastic. Wales.
1: What a guy. I mean, he definitely will be the, the only presidential candidate to have posted a picture of that. Although I, it'd be amazing if, if you could have a presidential candidate who is crazier and more outlandish than, than Trump. That would be a real achievement.
0: <laughs> also, he would be the only presidential candidate to have his dick on the line.
1: Yes, exactly. That's that's true. He will, that's another accolade. I'm sure he'll uh, he'll talk about.
0: <laughs> and unless Bitcoin hits a certain threshold, <clears throat> I'm not sure what his prediction was. I think it was, it was a million one hundred, dollars. It was a million,
1: million dollars by dollars. 2020. So yeah, he's got that's insane. He's got uh, he's got a year. We actually did an article on uh, Crypto Globe about in about at the end of November, early December. Um, Drawing, So we took about 10 or 12 of the top Bitcoin predictions from earlier in the year and drawing a graph of how high Bitcoin will have to rise in order for them to be true. So like things like Arthur Hayes predicting $50,000 in May and others predicting $100,000, which uh, was a bit mad looking back on it at the time.
0: We are certainly living interesting times. Which it's sometimes true. are funny, sometimes are just plain depressing. But you yeah, can never get bored on the internet and you can never get bored in the world of Bitcoin thanks to people like John McAfee and all the crazy and wild ones who do stuff and give us reasons to write reports like John Carvalho who told me, well, we should do this interview and I prepared questions for a proper interview and then prior to recording the interview, he told me, you know, actually challenge Roger Veer to a fight for the Bitcoin.com domain. <laughs>
1: yeah. th- Amazing. I saw that. Yeah, I saw that in the news. Yeah.
0: I was blown away. Like, what? Who does that? <laughs> this sounds like schoolyard stuff. And I guess John will get mad at me if he listens to this because I have an interview with him later today. But anyway, that, that's insane. That's very crypto-ish, very... Akin to the Bitcoin community.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's it's definitely not a boring industry to work in. And the other thing that others have pointed out to me is that you know in, in normal financial industries, you know, Crypto Globe, we're a small site. I, I've I have no history. No one knows who I am. I can, you know, I because of the way crypto works, I can have access to people like David Chalm and John McAfee, which is very cool. And in normal finance, if you want to interview, you know, Lloyd Blankfein of of uh, of uh, formerly of Goldman Sachs or Peter Thiel, the chances of you speaking to those people are next to none if you're not the Wall Street Journal or CNBC or, or whoever. So I think that is really actually a real positive, the fact that the industry is the way it is, that you, we can get to talk to people who are very high up in the industry and, and very well known. You don't have to be some massive financial or mainstream outlet in order to, to gain access to them.
0: I think it was the same in the 60s or in the early days of television when you'd have a job at the BBC and talk to John Lennon just because you're there yeah that's true yeah that would be good yeah and the more the industry grows and diversifies the more the harder it gets to actually reach the people who are influential or important for our culture so i guess that's why we build our own idols and our own icons in each field and then as Every industry diversifies, they create their own personalities, even though they are copycats or not as interesting as the originals. We all need people to report about. That's the bottom line. For sure, yeah. So I'm not sure if I have any more questions for you, Avi. Cool, well, it's been great talking
1: to you, Vlad. And uh, I hope I, this is, I think, the first podcast I've ever been on. So I hope I didn't sound like a rambling idiot, um, because it's it's hard to sometimes crystallize your thoughts verbally. But uh,
0: you you know I what I that. witnessed and I noticed from doing these podcasts that I can ask the same questions to people and talk about the very same topics and end up having different discussions. And this yeah, that's really interesting. The beauty of doing this. Yeah, I hope
1: I, I just, it's uh, it's always a bit daunting when you, you know, usually when you're having a conversation, you're, you're, you're aware that you're not paying as much attention to what you're saying. So I, I hope I didn't say something very stupid or illogical.
0: <laughs> no, it was actually interesting. And I'm happy that we got to discuss about John Stuart Mill and freedom of speech. And then yeah, we moved on to more crypto stuff, more Bitcoin-ish topics, more mainstream Bitcoinish topics, which get tackled in at least more frequently in a more regular way. But it's fascinating that we get to do something and have the kind of discussion which doesn't get out there very often. And I don't think academia is ready to embrace Bitcoin yet. They still I think most of academia in, in the West at least is left wing. Mm. Definitely. And they see something like Bitcoin as the exact opposite of what they stand for. And yep. they can either turn it into the enemy of their ideology or not mention it at all. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it pro- it's going to take a while.
0: But thank you for this conversation. and. This will get published on the Bitcoin Takeover website, which is bitcoin-takeover.com. And it's going to be a part of the whole season, which I deploy all at once. Oh, great. 10 episodes on the same day. so It can be binge listened. Or uh, the idea which I had was to just have 10 people in each season and not make any distinction between who they are, how big they are. It's all about the ideas. And maybe that I will have a couple of big names every season. But at the same time, I also want to promote people who have original takes on what Bitcoin is and how they perceive it in relation to world politics and maybe even the Bitcoin politics themselves. Because if you have a background in politics or political science, you see a lot of politics in Bitcoin and how people deal with stuff like the scaling debate and how protocols are deployed, soft forks and everything. And then there's the whole campaigning, which they do to promote a narrative for what Bitcoin should be. That's a lot of politics in it. Yeah. We should be aware of it. And if we actually care and we want it to be a reserve currency for the world, we have to preserve at least the idea of a fixed market capital, a fixed supply, not market capital, a fixed supply of 21 million. I think that's the biggest social attack that can happen to the yeah, yeah. itself. You cannot shut down miners or nodes. They will find new ways to move their equipment somewhere else. But with the, the 21 million supply, that's something that you can change by changing the consensus and making the nodes run a different version, which adjusts the supply. And I guess it's in the interest of miners, it's in the interests of socialists and people who feel like that supply is not enough or is unfairly distributed and they want to print more money. And if we actually want to make Bitcoin get a valuable position in world finance, we need to defend as much as we can the fundamental ideas. But uh, I I got sidetracked once again. Yeah. Well, great. It's been great. But thanks very much for having me. Goodbye, Abby. Thanks a lot. Have a good one.